Just in case you didn't know, today is the, uh, you know, it's December now, right? <laughs> uh, today's the first Sunday of the Advent season in the church. May have, uh, maybe you grew up in a church or a tradition that uh, celebrated Advent or recognized the, the season of Advent. Even if you didn't, maybe you've heard of <clears throat> Advent. Advent is a season that leads up to um, Christmas. Typically, it's the four Sundays that lead up to Christmas Day. And uh, interestingly enough, um, the, the season of Advent, the, the, the theme that has historically been focused on during the season of Advent, those weeks leading up to Christmas, is the second coming of Jesus. Is the, the, the Christ is going to return. Um, and uh, that's interesting because it, it, it's the weeks leading up to Christmas where we remember his first coming. The reason it, it, Advent is, it comes from the Latin word Adventus, which means coming or appearing. And, uh, and so the season leads up to Christmas, which remembers his first Advent, Christ's first Advent, his first coming is preceded by these weeks where we think about his, his, the fact that we're waiting on his second Advent, his second coming. Um, and that we're looking forward to. I, read, I, I mentioned that just because I read something the other day that was just beautiful about the Advent season, about the, the richness of the season. And maybe it'll help you think about, um, and maybe, maybe what, we, what I mentioned is going to help you think about uh, this time period leading up to Christmas and help you think about Christmas in a different way. Fleming Rutledge wrote a book on Advent, and she said this, um, Advent is preeminently the season of the second coming. And she's reflecting on this fact that this focus on the second coming leads up to this day where we remember the first coming. And she says, that, so does Advent run backwards? <laughs> the movement is from the second coming to the first coming. doesn't seem to make sense. The season begins with the last things and ends with the nativity in Bethlehem. Shouldn't it be the other way around? Not really. The rhythm of the church's seasons turns out in this as in so many other ways to be theologically profound. And here's what she means by that. If we began with the nativity and then moved to the last judgment, we would be so softened up by that little baby in the manger that we wouldn't be able to take the second coming of Christ in power seriously. The solemnity and awe do not lie in the fact that the baby becomes the eternal judge. What strikes us to the heart is this, the eternal judge very God of very God, creator of the worlds, the Alpha and the Omega, has become that little baby. That is rich. How? Because as we think about his second coming, Christ is going to return again, and we, and we remember that his second coming is not going to be anything like his first coming. His first coming was humble in a manger. His second coming, he has a robe dipped in blood and a name written on himself that no one knows. <laughs> you know, King of kings, Lord of lords. But we also remember that it's because of his first coming, because of what he did in his first coming, that those who have put their faith and their trust in Christ don't have anything to fear at his second coming. And, uh, and we follow hard after him, and we want to be found in faithful in him when he comes. But Jesus is the one who makes us ready. Because Scripture tells us, Paul says in the Galatians, that in the fullness of time he humbled himself and was born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. He redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. But Christ, uh, 
now that we're in Christ, is what I'm trying to say, we aim to follow hard after him and be found faithful when he comes, knowing ultimately, though, that we're, we're made right because of what he's done for us. This is a theme that fits very nicely, though, with our passage this morning in Hebrews. Uh, and what we're going to find in, in what we're going to think about this morning is another warning passage. Um, we've said a couple of times that there are five distinct warning passages in this letter to the Hebrews. Uh, and here they are, Hebrews 2, 1 through 4, Hebrews, whoa, Hebrews 3, uh, 7 through 4, 13, Hebrews 5, 11 through 6, 12, Hebrews 10, 19 through 39, and Hebrews 12, 1 through 29. And uh, you, from that list, we've already looked at the first two um, in the last few weeks. And uh, today, clearly, we come to that third one, Hebrews 5, 11 through 6, 12, and in some ways, this is the hardest of all of them. It's the most difficult to understand, as well as just, in some ways, being the most forceful of the, of the warnings. The, the message is, is stout. Why the warnings, though? Uh, you know, we've, we've mentioned the background of this letter um, almost every Sunday we've looked at it, but it's important. Why these warnings? Because... The writer of the Hebrews was writing to a church in which there were some who were tempted to walk away from Christ. Not, not the whole church, but there were some within the church. Tempted to walk away from Christ. Back to their old life in Judaism. And uh, what we're going to learn too in this passage though, that you learn a little bit more about these people who were tempted to walk away from Christ. Because it wasn't going to be like a reluctant walking away, looking back longingly at Christianity saying, I, I wish I could stay, but I must go. It, it's not that. It, 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 this passage is going to tell us those that were tempted to, to, to walk away, it was going to be a more forceful, intentional, um, yeah, walking away than that. A, a deliberate turning away from it. Not just, I wish I could stay, but I must go. And it's a warning that we, and he tells them, he's, if you walk away, you're walking away from all hope of salvation. It's a warning we need to hear. And think carefully about and hopefully begin this Advent season of looking forward to Jesus coming again with hearts that are thankful for the salvation that we have in Christ and devoted to following hard after him. So let, before we take a closer look, let's read it together. Uh, Hebrews 5.11 and we'll read through 6.12. About this we have much to say. And it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers... You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the wor word of righteousness since he is a child, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings and the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, the eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come if they then fall away since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. 
For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you showed for his sake in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to know, to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Let's pray. Father, this is, uh, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, sufficient, clear, and necessary word. As soon as we say clear, we recognize that we're in a passage like this one where it's not as clear as to us as some other passages, but we are confident that we can understand what you mean here because of other places that you've spoken to us in your word that help us to understand what is being said here. So this, too, is your clear word. And I pray that you would give us eyes to see the truth that is here. Give us clear minds to understand. Give me the, a clear mind to teach. Help me to teach as best as I know how and guard me from error. Give us hearts to embrace the truth that we receive here and, and to take it seriously. And give us wills to obey what it spurs us on to do. Help us to exalt and lift high Jesus and his salvation and take seriously the cost of following him and the mandate to do so. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so you can, you can kind of see how maybe this is not the easiest passage to understand. I think we can make some headway in it if we see how it clearly divides up into three parts and understand the main part, uh, points that it's trying to make. This is a warning passage, as you can tell. So we need to try to understand it both in light of the gospel and the assurance that the gospel, oh, blessed assurance, we just sang it. Gospel gives assurance. But also, don't, um, we need to feel the weight of the warning. That's what I'm trying to say. Uh, so here's how we're going to divide it up. Uh, we'll think first about the expectation of growth. The expectation of growth in those who profess faith in Christ. There, that's, that's like in verse, chapters five, chapter 5, verse 11 through 6-3. There's an expectation for those who profess faith in Jesus Christ that they will grow progressively in maturity over time. That's the point we're going to see made, made first. That's going to set up, that's going to set up the, the next point, the second point, and that is the effect of apostasy of those who deliberately walk away from Christ and His salvation. That's the point in chapter 6, verses 4-8. through eight which are definitely the hardest ones to understand. But you do remember, if you were here back when, I, when we talked about Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, that first warning passage. Remember when we talked about, we compared the warnings in Hebrews to that story of Paul and the shipwreck in Acts 26 or 7, where, where God had promised Paul that nobody in the boat was going to die during the storm, but then some of the guys were thinking about jumping overboard. Paul said, if you jump, you'll die. That's a warning. And yet God had already promised him that nobody was going to die. So how can it be, if God said nobody's going to die, how can he say, if you jump, you'll die? Well, that warning kept them in the boat, which kept them alive, which kept God's promise for coming true. 
That's kind of how these warnings are intended to work. So let's hear the, 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 this strong word on apostasy. But then finally, the encouragement to persevere. That's the, that's the last verses, chapter 6, verses 9 through 12. And as dire as this passage can and will seem, it ends on a hopeful note, which really does help keep this warning in its gospel perspective. So that's where we're going. So let's start at the beginning and think first about the expectation of growth at the end of chapter 5 and beginning of chapter 6. He makes this expectation the clearest in verse 12 of chapter 5. Look there again. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. So remember, he's writing to a church, a church full of people, and not everybody in the church is, is on the verge of falling away from Christ. And he'll make that clear later in the passage. But this verse is clearly addressed to those who are. And those who were, uh, several things to notice here. Those who were tempted to fall away were evidently not new professing converts. Like, they had apparently been professing believers for some time. And, and we're not brand new believers. Because he says he expects them to have had time to grow into maturity of the faith. By this time, you ought to have grown into maturity. By this time. They, they've been around the church for a long time. And he says, you ought to be. By this time, you ought to be. That's where the expectation comes in. There is no category in Scripture for a truly born-again believer who goes year and year and years and years and years of their life without any progress whatsoever into spiritual maturity. There's just not a category in Scripture for that person. And spiritual maturity is not something that just happens automatically just because of the passage of time. Just hear that. You're not going to just automatically become more mature in Jesus just because you get older. I've met some very spiritually immature older people. And I've met some spiritually mature younger people. It, it, the, the mere passage of time is not the key. Okay? But how to, how to, what is the key? Look at verse 14. But solid food is for the mature. And here's how he's going to describe the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. That's how you grow in maturity. Through constant practice. Meaning, through obedience to the Word over time. And, you, and, you, and, and through that obedience, you, you grow in, dis, it says, in discernment between good and evil. You grow in being able to discern between a life that is pleasing to Christ and a life that is not. And whether or not your life, which one your life fits into. And you... You want to be found in that category of a life that is pleasing to Christ, and that's what you pursue. That's maturity. And he says in verse 12, back in verse 12, that there are those in the church who ought to be in that place in their lives. But they had apparently, A, not gotten to that place yet after a long period of time but also had apparently grown cold in their hearts to the gospel itself. That's what he means. He's talking about the gospel when he says, when he refers to the basic principles of the oracles of God. He's just talking about the basic gospel. Why? What was the problem? Did they not understand the gospel? 
Was it, was it, I don't, I'm not clear on it in my mind. No, it's worse than that. He says right there in verse 11, you have become dull of hearing. You have become dull of hearing it. That same word translated dull right there in verse, chapter 5, verse 11, it's the same word that in chapter 6, verse 12 is translated sluggish. This, that same Greek word appears twice in this passage. In 5.11, it's dull. In 6.12, it's sluggish. That's how it describes these professing believers tempted to leave Christ. They were dull of hearing the gospel. They were sluggish in hearing it. They were tired of hearing it. And he describes the gospel that they were becoming dull of hearing. He describes the gospel that they were growing tired and sluggish of hearing in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. When he says in those verses, when he talks about the elementary doctrine of Christ, again, he's talking about the gospel, and he describes that gospel in the foundational beliefs of, as he puts it, repentance from dead works, meaning trusting in Christ alone for our salvation and repenting from trusting in our good works, which don't earn us any favor before God. And he talks about, uh, in verse 2, of instruction about washings. That could be translated about baptisms. And it's, notice it's plural. Washings or baptisms. And I take it to mean the difference between Christian baptism versus the several ceremonial washings in Judaism. Okay? And he talks about the laying on of hands, which I, I take to mean the symbolic action of receiving the Holy Spirit. In the early church. You can see that in Acts. And finally the resurrection of the dead. And eternal judgment. Which would be the gospel truths of understanding peace. The peace we have with God through Jesus Christ. And the judgment we will face if we don't have it. It's the basic gospel. And the writer of Hebrews. When he says in verse 1. Therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. He's not saying leave the gospel behind. No, he's saying go deeper into the gospel. Leave the elementary depths of it. Go into greater depths. The imagery is not going past it, going deeper into it. And there are many in the church, in that church, who had professed faith in Christ apparently for some time and had grown tired of hearing it altogether. There was no desire in them to grow deeper in it or in obedience to it. And that is, that is a warning, that is a reality that we need to hear still today. I mean, I think there are lots of people in the, in the church that, that fit that category. They just get, they get tired of hearing that same old gospel message every week. They're growing dull of hearing it. And he says in chapter 6, verse 3, that their dullness or, and sluggishness in knowing and trusting the gospel is putting God to the test. He reminds them that salvation is God's work in our hearts. And he tells them that they are already under the threat of God's judgment for their seeming unbelief. When he tells them how they should be, growing in maturity and faith by now, and they need to repent and press on in Christ, he reminds them in verse 3 of chapter 6 that they depend on God in this. He says in all that, let us leave, let's go on to maturity. He says in verse 3, and this we will do if God permits. 
if God permits. Uh, the admonition is, let us leave the elementary doctrine and go on to maturity. This we will do if God permits. That's strong. We talked this past Wednesday night at CBS. If you were here, you'll remember this. Here's how we applied this fact this past Wednesday night at CBS. You cannot assume. You cannot assume that you will get serious about following Christ at some time in the future. I mean, you cannot, you cannot assume that you will start growing in maturity in Christ after my freshman year or when, after I'm out of college or when I get married or whatever, when I get past X, Y, or Z. But that's not how it works at all. Because that's overlooking what's going to happen to you in the meantime. In that meantime, when you said after this, you can't skip over that time and go immediately. That something's going to happen to you in that in that middle ground. And 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 and, and it's total that view. I'll, I'll get serious about Christ when if it's, if the answer's not now. And sometime in the future, that view of growing in Christ is totally absent. That sanctification is work that God does in you. And, 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 and what's going to happen is the longer you put off following hard after Jesus, the longer you put that off, the harder your heart becomes in the process. And when that later arbitrary point that you set for yourself, maybe you said after my freshman year, when you come to be a sophomore, your heart is harder and there's no longer any desire there. So that, that plan you had at the first is shot. And that's why we said in the passage in Hebrews 3 just a few weeks ago, Hebrews 3 said, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the wilderness. Today. The mark of, the, the mark of people who have the Holy Spirit of God in their lives is that they hear that and that moves them. They hear that and it moves them to trust and obey. Perfectly? No. But they don't ignore the warning. You know? And that's exactly where this passage goes. It goes deeper into a more dire warning against those in the church who, while professing to be believers, or who had been professing faith in Christ, were becoming totally uninterested, and even worse, in the gospel altogether. And in, and in verses 4-8, through eight, he'll tell them and warn them against the effects of apostasy. What is apostasy? Apostasy is abandoning, abandoning the faith for good. Apostasy is abandoning the faith for good. Apostasy is walking away fully and finally from a professed faith in Christ. I'm parsing my words carefully. I'm not saying apostasy is you can be truly born again, truly converted by the Holy Spirit, and, and, and lose it. That's not, I don't think the Bible could teach that at all. What I'm saying is apostasy is walking away fully and finally from a professed faith in Christ. You see the difference? And that's what he's talking, I think it's what he's describing here. And I have to confess, these are some of the, 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 the most difficult to understand verses in Scripture because the, the key question is precisely that. Are these descriptions in verses 4 through 6 of chapter 6 describing an actual born-again believer? Losing their salvation? Or is it just describing 
someone who has professed faith in Christ and is a, is a, a church member who may not actually be born again. And there are good, respected scholars on both sides of the fence of that interpretive question. And for me, for me, all I can do is tell you how I understand it based on Scripture. So here's, here it goes. What he says in verses 4 through 6 um, are a hypothetical, if they fall away. And look at the descriptions, look at the list of descriptions there in verses 4 through 6. He says, they have once been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and the powers of the age to come. They seem to be descriptions of a believer. At least a professing one. Because from, from our limited viewpoint, if you profess faith in Christ based on what Scripture says, I would say that's true of you. Those things are true of you. But I'm just basing it on what you're telling me is going on in your heart. I'm basing it on your profession of faith. Those are things that Scripture says are true of believers. They've been enlightened. They've tasted the heavenly gift, shared the Holy Spirit, powers of the age to come. Everyone in that church professed to be a believer. But the writer of Hebrews was well aware that there were some in that congregation who said, they, who said that, they professed faith, but were not living like it. And in fact, time, the time going on in their life was telling a different story. And the main warning of this verse is kind of split up between the beginning and end of the verse. He lists those characteristics and then says, if some of those people have fallen away, which means falling away is a deliberate turning their back on Christ, walking away from the faith fully and finally. What about those people? What does it say? It's split up. It says, he says, it is impossible. It is impossible to restore them again to repentance. Maybe if I took out the middle words, you could see it better. For it is impossible to restore them again to repentance. If you took out all the middle words, that's, the, that's, that's, that's what it says. The point is, these people, if they, walk, if, 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 they, if they decide to walk away from Jesus forever, it's impossible to come back. Now that seems like what it's clearly saying. And we need to, un that, that's, that, that's precisely where it gets hard, <laughs> by the way. Uh, and we need to understand that in, uh, in context of the, of the rest of Scripture, as well as feel the real weight of it. Because the weight of it is this. If God is just to judge us in the end, He is just to bring His judgment early. He does not owe us any amount of time. Notice that word at the beginning of verse 4, that word for. For it is impossible. Well, the word for links it to what he said in verse 3. And what did he just say in verse 3? And this we will do if God permits. In other words, those two, those two ideas are connected. That the reason it is impossible to come back in their case in one sense is because God sometimes brings His judgment early on people. And He will not permit it. I mean, that's the same truth as in Romans 1 where it says over and over again, therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity. Therefore, God gave them up to do what ought not to be done. Therefore, God gave them up. Three times in Romans 1, it says, God gave them up. 
Same idea here. That's the weight of the warning. And it's a heavy one. But we need to balance that with the rest of the scriptures too. Because it is also true that God knows those who are truly his. God knows those who are truly his. And Peter was Christ's when he denied Jesus openly three times in a night, but Jesus welcomed him back. And even prophesied beforehand that he knew Peter would come back. So the Christian life, just know this, if you're trusting in Jesus this morning, the Christian life is one that ebbs and flows. You know, because we're weak sinners. Desires come and go. And there will be times when we feel like there's no life in us at all. But so did the psalmist, many, many psalms. God knows when a turning away is more permanent and settled. God knows it. And this turning away, this is what I was, was the reason I was saying earlier. This turning away in Hebrews 6 does not seem like a, I wish I could stay, I still respect you guys, I still love you guys, but I'm going to go over here. It's a deliberate and, and, and um, more spiteful turning away. How do you know that? Notice how he describes their turning away in verse 6. They are crucifying, once again, the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Holding him up to contempt. Another reason it's impossible to restore them again to repentance is because it describes no desire on their part to come back but contempt ongoing for Christ. God knows those who are His. And, and Jude says in Jude one twenty four that God is able to keep you from stumbling and present you before His presence with great joy. But there are those who make a profession of faith, of trust in Christ, which if true would fit the description given in verses 4-6, through six, that God knows the heart. The only way any one of us can tell, because we're not God, I can't see your heart, you can't see mine. The only way we can tell in each other if the, if the, if the profession of faith is true or not is by the fruit of our lives. That's the point of verses 7 and 8. It gives the example of rain falling on the earth and producing fruit from the ground, but what kind of fruit is it though? Verse 7, it's a useful crop. And in verse 8, it's thorns and thistles. The first receives the blessing of God. The second, his curse. The fruit tells the story. That doesn't mean the useful crop is complete sinlessness. Do you realize that repentance over sin is a fruit? Okay? That's a sign of life. So if you're here, and you are trusting in Christ this morning, Hear this warning, feel its weight, but let it drive you back to Christ over and over again, diligent to keep your heart from growing hard and diligent to keep your love for Christ from going cold. If that's your desire, God put it there. That doesn't come from you. doesn't come from me. Those who especially need to hear this warning 
are those who say they trust Christ, but in reality, it is no more than words. And, it, and, and if you took the label Christian off their life, it would make no difference in their lifestyle, none whatsoever. Hear the warning. And let it drive you wholeheartedly back to Jesus in obedience and, and, and greater discipleship. Follow hard after him as we wait for him to return. And the last note of this passage is an encouraging one. And it's an encouragement to persevere. Notice what he says in verse 9. He says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. What kind of things? Things that belong to salvation. It's, he, he, he knows that, that there are many in that church who are not in this category at all. You, 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 you imagine, you've you got to imagine that, that there are, there's this church and there's some in, there in the church that are tempted to leave. And whoever wrote this letter says, I need to, uh, I need to write a letter to this church and I need to warn those who are tempted to leave. But somebody is going to receive this letter and read it to everybody. You see what I'm saying? Everybody's going to hear it. And there's going to be plenty of people in there who are going to go, oh shoot, is that me? And he knows it's not everybody. He knows that there are some who are tempted to, to, to uh, walk away from Christ. They are not just tired of hearing it, but contempt for Christ is growing in their heart. He knows that those, he wants, the, he wants people to understand this. Those in the church who really are born again and have the Holy Spirit of God in their hearts, they will heed the warning. Those are the people who have no desire whatsoever to walk away from Jesus. I mean, if you're here this morning and the very idea of walking away from Jesus is a little unnerving, that's good. That's good. It's a God-given thing. That's a far cry from contempt, which they were showing. And to prevent unnecessary worry in them, he says, we feel sure of better things for you, things pertaining to salvation. And, and like I said, if there were those then, and if this is you now, who say, oh no, I feel like I've been a professing believer for a long time. And I don't feel like I've grown very much. Oh no. If that concerns you, and the oh no is a desire to grow, that's the Holy Spirit in you. That's wonderful. The warning has had its intended effect in you. The warning has done its job. God sees that desire in you, and He says in verse 10 that God is not unjust. He sees that desire in you. So hope in Him and cry out to Him to help you grow in maturity and into Christ, and to, to persevere in it to the end, like verse 11 says. And note there too in verse 11, he says that we can persevere to the end and have the full assurance of hope. The full assurance of hope. Oh, blessed assurance. We 
don't have to go around worried and anxious. God is good and just, and He wants you to know His love for you, and He wants you to grow in your love for Him. And if that's your desire, He put that desire there for your good, for your everlasting good. Let's pray.